0: Well, hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, March the 21st, 2022. This is episode 3058 of the Survival Podcast. Today's going to be an Outback with Jack episode. That's just me answering your questions and comments. and uh, Done usually and done today in a live stream. You'll hear when I bring the live stream in, I'll say, here we are again. And that's because in the middle, well not the middle, thankfully, uh, we were about 15 minutes in and a loud, piercing, obnoxious alarm went off on my end and then... The laptop stayed up because it's on its own power system, but the screen you know, the, the the live feed dropped. My other machine, which is a desktop, went black, the monitor went black, the modem went off and the router went off and everything went off. And the loud piercing alarm was my UPS, which for those that don't know is an uninterruptible power source. This was the confusing thing. All the lights stayed on in the room. I thought, well maybe the pow- that, that one outlet died or something. Well, then why didn't the power stay on? Because I had an uninterruptible power source. And then, of course, people thought the NSA got me or something. No, it's not, I guess, not today's show. Um, my, my UPS committed suicide. Like, it just decided it had lived long enough and it wanted to die. I guess I haven't played with it and figured it out yet, but it, it died. Um, and it, 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 you know, with a pass through power, you would think it would just not interrupt things. It would just fail when the power. Nope. Nope. It acted like the power went out, and then it gave no power. So I don't know if that's just because the battery has reached the end of its life or what, but uh, this is the irony. This is a prepper paradox. I have a UPS because I'm a prepared prepper, and so I'm prepared for the power to go out. Had I not had a UPS, it wouldn't have happened. So I, had to, I just redid the show from the top, and uh, we got it all done, and it's all listener questions today. It's all in homesteading and permaculture and things like that. Fruit trees, pruning, conditioning soil, pond management, getting a hold of seed stocks, some plant varieties, tons of stuff. We'll get to all of it in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsor of the day. Sponsor day number one today is jam bullion. Look, guys, I know I talk about crypto a lot, specifically Bitcoin. And then people are like, what about gold and silver? I'm like, that too. I believe in diversity in your investments. So I believe in buying gold and silver. I always get my gold and silver whenever I'm buying it from JM Bullion, and here's why I do it and why you should too. Number one, if you buy from JM Bullion, you get free shipping. Number two, you get the same price that you get or better from all the big silver houses like Monix and Acmex. Three, if you're an MSB member, you get a discount, right? So that's good enough right there. But if there is a problem, for, for like here's for example, last week, Someone had a problem. They had to have a claim put in, I guess, because of you know, stolen or lost in the mail or whatever. And it got taken care of. And the guy emailed me, and he was very accusational. You said you could help, whatever. And I, I said, lose your tone. I emailed Michael over there. He got in touch with Robert. And it got taken care of. And it was going to get taken care of anyway, but I did it anyway. I told the guy, I almost didn't bother because you're being accusational at me when all I ever offered to do was help you. He's like, prove you're a man of your word. Calm down. If there's a problem, it'll get handled, and it did, even though that was kind of a dick to me, right? Well, that's who you want to deal with. I, I was asked by Lear Capital, which is a much bigger company, to take them on as a sponsor. And I said, can I talk to your president or your CEO or, like, your director of operations, somebody at that level? And they said, no, you can just talk to me. I'm with marketing. So well, then I want to talk to you because I don't deal with companies where I can't talk to somebody that can absolutely make what I need to happen happen. That's what I have in Jam Bullion, and that's why you should get your silver and gold from them. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com, the other precious metal. BulkAmmo is a loyal sponsor, been with us like eight years now. All the common calibers, lightning fast shipping straight to your door, discount for MSB. Loyal supporter of the show, your gun, absent ammo, is an expensive club or a barter item. It can't do what a gun is supposed to do. You need ammo to train. You need ammo to put food on the table, and God forbid you need to use your gun and defend your life and property, you need ammo for that, too. If you run out of ammo, you got an expensive club. And what happens every time there's rumors of new gun regulations and laws? Guns don't dry up. Magazines dry up, accessories dry up, and ammo dries up. Get your ammo while it's in stock. Stay well stocked ammo properly stored keeps damn near forever it's a good thing to stock up on and if you're going to stock up on something buy it in bulk at bulkammo.com, where it'll ship so fast when it shows up you'll be like what is that oh my ammo it's here already really yep that's how fast it is with that let's drop into the live feed today with a ton of variety and we are live again and if you're here for the second time thank you and if you're not here for the second time you're here for the first time you wonder what that's all about well, we were about 15 minutes into the episode, and guess what happened? My UPS committed suicide. That's an unusual thing. Um, it's a prepper's paradox. Because I'm a prepper, and I prepare, I have backup power. And for my computer, like most normal people with computers, I use a UPS, or Uninterruptible Power Source, and... Um, Here's what happened, guys. I uh heard the alarm go off on the UPS, meaning power's out. Well, if that's the case, then everything should stay up. We have an annoying whining alarm that I could have turned off and at least told you what was going on. And here's the thing. None of the power in the house went off. And all the power to the devices on the UPS died. So it's like, what's going on? Well, the UPS apparently committed suicide. And it just is, uh, uh... <laughs> It is. It's a prepper paradox, right? If I had not been prepared, if I was just running on straight power and no backup, the stream wouldn't have been destroyed. So we had only really gotten into the second bullet point. We didn't even finish that one. So I'm going to start all over, and I'm going to skip kind of the uh, the side notes that we had in the first one. We're just going to roll through all these questions that came in on social media. For those of listening for the first time, we have questions today from Twitter uh we have MeWe questions, we have float questions. And there were so many that came in when I put out the uh, call for them yesterday, but I didn't get them all and we'll probably take a big pile of the ones we didn't get and we will move them over to Friday's out back with Jack. Remember this week we're going to be all into solutions folks instead of what's wrong. We covered that enough last week. So, here we go. Let's start off with the first question we have today. It is from Joe on MiWi. He says, first fruit trees to plant on a new property." He asked about nitrogen-fixing trees, should those go in first? But his real question was, what are the first three fruit trees I should plant on my new property? Didn't tell me where he lived, didn't tell me how big the property is. More importantly, he didn't tell me what he likes and what he doesn't like as far as fruits and nuts. Uh, he didn't tell me if something would kill him if he hated Like, See, this is one of those questions, right? When somebody's like, and I'm not picking on, on Joe here, because like, you, know, you ask for questions, you get questions. But how could I possibly know what trees you should plant on your property first, right? The first thing we have to do when we're evaluating anything from a standpoint of homesteading, permaculture, planting, gardening, whatever, is analyze the client. The client would be you, and if you're married, your wife and the rest of your family, right? And so the first question I have for you is, what do you like to eat when it comes to fruits, or what do you like to make meat out of if you're going to make meat instead of eat the fruit directly so what do you like then the next question i have is what grows well in your area here in texas we can grow peaches plums apricots pluots plum quats like all of those mixes of plums and apricots and things like that stone fruits all the stone fruits except cherries do beautifully in texas apples don't do quite so well in texas so I would be more likely to start, especially if you're only have a few trees to begin with, with something that does well in your area. If you're in Wisconsin, you probably can grow apples really, really easily, and you might want to look more toward apples or you know, more cold-tolerant uh, stone fruits, so plums and stuff that are a little bit more toward northern climate. So you really need to adapt your trees to your needs and your climate. Who grows what around you? Pears do really good here. But you know what does better than like Bartlett pears or your standard pears? Like Chinese uh, pears, like Kujoho. They do really good here. So if I was in Texas and I was looking for my first couple trees to plant, I might plant like an Asian pear, like a Kujoho. Uh, I might plant an apricot, and I might plant a plum. And the plum and the apricot will cross-pollinate, and that doesn't cause any problems or anything. You're not going to get plum quads from that. It's a, it's a different way that you do that. Um, if I wanted nut trees in Texas, I'm going to grow pecans. The best nut you can grow in Texas is a pecan. Texas and pecans go hand in hand. They they grow native and wild here. If you're uh, in the northeast, you might want to look at hazelnut. Because hazelnuts do really well in the northeast. Uh, Chestnuts do really well in more northern climates than I'm in right here. So that's really, I can't tell you what the plant, but he also asked about nitrogen fixers. And I I did want to hit that real quick with a lot of you guys watch videos of people like Jeff Lawton. And you see what they do in the tropics. And they plant large amounts of leguminous species, uh, nitrogen-fixing pioneer trees. And they do that for two reasons that largely in North America do not apply. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just means you need to understand why they really need to do it. And we don't really need to do it. It's kind of like a, a nice-to-have, depending on the, on, the, on the location. The tropics and subtropics have very thin soils. And through the wet season, which is about nine months or more, they have very heavy, continuous, almost everyday rainfall. When I was stationed in Panama in the Army when I was a young man, uh, we pretty much knew about 4 o'clock it was going to rain till about 4.45. Throughout the rainy season. Like It might rain other times, but it was going to rain for that 45-minute period. You could almost set your watch by it. Like, oh, it's 4 o'clock. Better get in the motor pool because it's going to rain. And pff, here it can't like deluge of rain. And when you get rain like that over and over and over, it washes a lot of nutrient out thin soils in the tropics, subtropics. So they're trying with, with that nitrification process to put lots of root matter and bring in and create lots of mulch and get the nitrogen in the soil. I think it's really advantageous to use nitrogen-fixing trees in food forest establishment in North America, but largely it's not necessary, right? And if you're talking about planting trees, it's really not necessary. If I was worried about putting nitrogen in the soil, building up organic matter and things like that in the North American climate, I would probably use more of a cover crop mix uh, with things like lespeditum, cowpea, clovers, Various nitrogen fixers, even just straight up beans and things like that, planted in and amongst my newly established uh, fruit trees. Heavy mulches, but when you put a tree in, never mulch up to the tree's base. When you mulch around a tree, you really want to mulch around the tree. So if you've got a young new tree and it's not that big, it's got a canopy of a couple feet, you probably want a couple feet of bare soil around the tree. And you want the mulch kind of out from the canopy. And if it is any mulch under the canopy, you want it to be very thin, and at least you know a good six-inch diameter around the trunk of the tree. You want no mulch. You want to—I know that sounds crazy, but you want to leave the ground bare. If 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 natural vegetation grows in there, that's fine. You really don't want to cover up, and you never want to put mulch on a tree's trunk. Mulch tree trunk equals rotted tree trunk. So a lot of times when you watch landscapers, who I, I really don't know where these guys learn what they're doing. They make what they call, I call them tree volcanoes. So does uh, Howard Garrett, the dirt doctor. And so you look and there's this tree and it's planted like in a parking lot. And it's growing up out of this little island of dirt in the parking lot. And it's got this mulch that's like around it. It's only about, you know, two feet in diameter. It's piled like eight inches up the trunk of the tree. That's terrible. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Please don't do that to your trees. Uh, but, yeah, when it comes to picking the first trees to plant on your new property, I would pick what you like. But I would also consider some alternatives that are going to get to fruit faster. First thing I want to plant is probably going to be berries. Uh, blackberries in the south, raspberries in the more northern climates. Uh, very, very quick to production, second-year production. Uh, another thing you can look at planting, blueberries or high-bush bush blueberry. And blueberry is a great plant because... Either you have some somewhat acidic soil and it'll grow great in the soil, or you don't, and it's a great plant to grow in containers where we can put in an acidic soil mix. Or any other shrubs uh, that are berry producers for fruit. It's going to be much, much faster that way uh, than relying on trees, which, yes, you should plant trees, but I'm going to like the first thing I want to get into is your perennial bushes and shrubs. Uh, Autumn olive. Gumi G-O-U-M-I, which is basically a giant, more delicious autumn olive. And then small frame trees that are really, really productive and produce unique things you can't buy. If you like kind of a tart cherry flavor, then I would look into a plant called Cornelian cherry, which really isn't a cherry. It's a dogwood, uh, Latin name Cornus moss. And uh, you can find them at One Green World. You can find them at Rain Tree Nursery. You can just search for... Uh, cornelian cherry and you can find lots of places that sell them they're a very small tree um, they can get larger if you let them but pruned it they're very easy to maintain it like basically it's like a small frame upright shrub i have several of those uh that are only about seven years old and they are not as tall as me and they produce every year and the little tree produces gobs of these things i wish i had better soils I would put in a cornelian cherry nursery, and I would start a business selling cornelian cherry mead. Like I would literally make a small commercial meadery if I could get my hands on enough of them. They're that fantastic. Somebody here in the uh, is saying rose hips, great. Somebody's saying mulberry. Mulberry will produce quickly, and if you look for um, ah Morris Morris Alba something, I can't think of the last part of the, the name now, but dwarf mulberry. It will actually get be a really big plant, but you can prune it to much smaller, and it will produce in its first year, definitely its second year, and it's ever meaning it'll produce consistently throughout the season. And it, that's, not really, that's not really accurate. That's how it's described in the catalog. Trees don't read catalogs. Bushes don't read catalogs. So it produces in the spring, and then it produces in the summer, and it produces a little bit more in the fall. Kind of like three flushes. Big flush, little flush, pretty good size flush at the last production of the season. So... That would be another thing that you could look at there. Next up, Prairie Mountaineer on Miwi says, "What is, is this? The right time for spring pruning? Uh, it depends on where you're at. If you're in Texas, the right time for pruning was two weeks ago and back. Spring pruning is not really where we want to prune. We really want to prune in winter. You want the best time to prune trees is when the tree's dormant, because you're doing surgery on the tree. Think of it that way. You're doing surgery on the tree. And would you like me to do surgery on you?" While you're awake or under anesthesia? And you're probably like, well, dude, yeah, I'd rather be, you know, anesthesia. Absolutely, right? So trees don't feel pain the way that we do, but while sap's running, a wound is more of a, think of it as tree blood, right? So the tree's going to actually have sap come out the wound if we do that. Doesn't mean we can't. Doesn't mean if you have something that really needs pruning not to do it. But best practice is prune during dormancy. Right now, about 60% of my trees are still dormant, which is unusual, and I'm hoping for a really great fruit set this year. Usually my trees go and and go into uh, bud and, and blossom way earlier, and then we get a late freeze, and I get very bad uh, fruit production because all the blossoms get knocked off by a late freeze. This year, we had enough cold in our winter. It wasn't really a harsh winter. It was just a cold, consistently cold winter, Um, keeping temperatures down in the 40s and below most of the time that the trees are just now coming out. So if you're further north than me, you have plenty of time probably to get out there and do your pruning. I do want to say, though, it does not mean that you can't prune your trees in the summer, in the spring, and and even in early fall. If you're doing backyard nursery uh, techniques, a la, uh, what's his name, Dave, Dave Wilson, um, where you're keeping that tree managed to a really small size, you're going to prune five, six times a year, but you're mainly going to be pruning now new growth to maintain that tree. When you're cutting off the prior year's growth, you really want to prune when that tree's dormant. So From the time the leaves fall till bud break is your time for pruning. Next up, um, Darren Ward on me. We said I want to keep coons, possums, etc. From raiding my tomatoes. He said last year something tore up his tomatoes and ate his tomatoes. Um, I don't really have any better advice than I gave a few weeks ago about cats pooping in your garden. I don't have any better advice than I gave about that. And as a motion-activated sprinkler. They work really well. I'll have some links in the audio version of the podcast. There's a link in the video notes below, and you can click that link after the live stream's over, about an hour after the live stream's over. The, the audio episode will be up, and all the links and resources will be there. Uh, of the, the, the ones I would use are made by Orbit, and a video showing how effective, a different model in the video, but how effective it is at chasing away coons, possums, etc. This is a guy that just doesn't want to meet all the, the, the seed out of his uh, bird seed. Uh, But either way, when something, like, comes through the night and it's a wild critter and then you get that rainbird uh, sprinkler action, it tends to chase them away. Now, um, I would also advise you, know thy enemy. So what's actually eating your tomatoes? I have grown a lot of tomatoes in my life. Everywhere I've lived, there's been coons and possums around. I have never had... A situation where I go out and my tomatoes are eaten or tore up or something like that. I would advise you probably to get yourself some sort of a game camera. And you know, unless you're going to use it for other things like security or actually for scouting deer or something like that, you know, buy a cheap one. Buy just just one good enough to work. Whether if you have some place to mount it, there already fine. If not, throw a stake in the ground and mount it to a stake and point it right at where your tomatoes are. And find out, what is this what is this thing that's actually causing you problems? And you'll, one or two things. The, the sprinkler will work, and you'll still know what it is, and you'll get to laugh at it being run out of your garden. Maybe you can put a video up and get make a YouTube bunny, right? Uh, or you're going to find out that it's not working, but you're going to know what it is. And once we know what it is, we can take further corrective action because we might find out it's something other than what we think that it is. And here's an example of that. A few years ago, I had somebody insisting that uh, roly polies, pill bugs, were eating—I don't even remember what it was—but some of their some plant, radishes or something. It doesn't even matter. And I was like, "No, uh, pill bugs are decomposers. They don't eat live things. They eat dead matter. They—they they clean up. They're not a problem." And they said, "Well, I know it's them." And I, you know, I commented back, "Well, how do you know?" And they said, "Well, here's the plant. It's all damaged." And when I pull back the mulch, there's roly-polies in the mulch. That's a guilt by association, man. Like Just because they're there doesn't mean they're the one doing it. It's like, do you have any video of them actually munching down? Because they don't do that. So the issue here could be misidentification of the problem. So it's always a good idea to get as much intel as you can on a problem, and game cameras are a good way to do that. They're also an added security measure, and they have a lot of other cool features that they're allowing you to do if you get your hands on some of them. Uh, next up. Craig asked me about conditioning black gumbo clay. You may not know what that is, but it's considered here in Texas to be the worst of the worst soil. I wish I had more of it. Um, it can be problematic. And everybody thinks that their issue where they are is as bad as it gets. So mostly in central Texas and south central Texas and over till we get to the desert, our soils are, are, are black clay. Uh, as you go east, you get more and more into the red clay stuff. The red clay is just as problematic as the black clay. We just, again, when you have something, it becomes it, it must be worse because you don't like it and it sucks. Um, clay soil is actually incredible, incredible soil to grow in. It. it really is. It's it, once conditioned and we have a good layer of good fertile topsoil. The thing about clay is it holds moisture really well, and even though it's hard. Once roots get down into it, they can go for you know forever in a day as far as they want to. Uh, it's not impermeable like the rock that I have on my property, so I wish my property was all black gumbo clay. But it is a bitch to establish if you go about it the hard way, because when it's dry and you pull a trunk of it out, you can literally beat it with a hammer, and it's like beating soft rock. When it's wet. It's gummy and nasty and sticky, just like, well, red clay. Worse, when it dries out, it cracks and opens up big gaps. And then when it rains, the water goes straight down the cracks. And it takes a lot of water to recharge the, the moisture in the soil and actually bring those cracks back together. So the key is get it well cared for and then don't ever let it dry out like that. So what we really need is to get as much root into the soil permanently as possible. And if we're gardening, then we need to make sure when there's not roots in the soil that we maintain moisture. So we might even do a little bit of irrigation during the off-season. Thick mulch, lots of compost. The number one thing you can do is actually compost tea. Life is what changes soil. I remember listening to a lecture by Dr. Elaine Ingham who is probably the foremost soil expert on the planet, and she would say how they would go to a place and they would be like, well, we have clay, and she'd be like, okay. Or they have sandy loam, and she'd be like, okay. Or they have, you know, sand or whatever. And whatever they said they had, she would then analyze the the, the conditions on the ground and formulate a compost and then brew a compost tea, and then they would spray the ground for a season. And after the end of a season or two of spraying with the compost tea, and this is large operations, this is a 100-acre-plus operation she's talking about here, so it's less practical to do the thing I'm going to give you next, what you can do in a backyard. So they just had to spray just due to cost. And so then they would send the soil back to the test lab, and the lab would be like, oh, this is a sandy loam. And they'd be like, okay, sure. And it'd come back, and it, sure enough, it was almost 100% clay, but it had the structure of a sandy loam. Or they would have a sand, and it would have sand would have structure to it. You could tell it was sand because of color, but it would have structure as though it was more of a sandy loam. And, and that that is because the most important thing in the soil, believe it or not, isn't organic matter. That's important. The most important thing is the life web in the soil, having aerobic uh, bacteria and fungi instead of anaerobics, having you know not having excessive compaction. And having things like beneficial nematodes and things like that in the soil. So the number one way to do that, make your own compost or get it from a... I would not make compost tea with commercial compost. I just wouldn't. I'll use commercial compost because it's I need it and I need it in bulk and I can get it and I don't have enough on hand. If I'm making compost tea, I either want to make my own compost or I want to get it from a good... Like somebody locally that makes their own or something like that. You want to brew a compost tea and you want to aerate it. So... We put the compost in something like a, a pillowcase, something like a giant tea bag. Tie it up, throw it into a garbage can, and let it soak in there. And there's a lot of ways to do it. You can get really sophisticated with it, but all you really need is a small aquarium air pump and an airstone. And like a bigger airstone is a good idea, like a disc size one or like one of the long ones. Put it in the bottom, turn the thing on, run it for at least 48 hours. Take that dilution at about 5 to 1, 10 to 1, somewhere in that range. And spray the area in question. That is the number one thing that you can do to improve things. That's cheap because you know this much—a bucket of compost can do the work of you know ten wheelbarrows of compost almost. At scale of a garden, though, what I would do is I would go. I would go ahead personally, and I would get some cheap, rotted, nasty chicken feed, something from the feed store that they want to get rid of, or just buy some if they don't have any, they can sell you cheap, and put down a thin layer of that for the garden footprint, put a layer of compost on top of that, and mulch on top of that and water that. If you have time, uh, that is kind of your best way to deal with clay soils. And you'll find really, really quickly that the more you give organic matter and keep it damp, the quicker it will form structure. And it just won't be the problem that you think it is. So that's, that's my way of dealing with uh, black gumbo. And my, my if you guys have seen some of my old videos back when I was fat and I lived down in Arlington, Texas, um, and I had these incredible gardens there, that was all black gumbo. It was all black gumbo. And I did have raised beds. There were about four inches of raised bed material. And so you say, well, that's raised bed material. Well, we actually incorporated a lot of the clay with organic matter. But by the time I moved out, and I'd been there five years, I could stick my arm... Almost to my elbow, down into the raised bed, into the clay. So at that point, I was more than my hand into black clay and pull it up, and it looked like topsoil. Because structure is really what structure and life and organic matter, all three of those things are what it's really all about. But you get the structure and the life and the organic matter doing its best work if you put lots of life into the soil, positive life. All right, next up. Skyler Amiwi said he found 11 dead turtles in his pond and wants to know what's going on. He's new to this. The answer is, of course, I don't know. I I, I can't possibly know what's going on with your pond, but I can have my suspicions. He didn't say how big the pond was either. I'm thinking, uh, probably most people that have a pond that they didn't build themselves, a lot of times you buy like some you know, older farm property or something. And and they have ponds, but they're ponds that we refer to in Texas, and I don't know if they do this in other states, as stock tanks. And we think of a stock tank, you go down to Tractor Supply or Atwoods or something, you buy, you know, a 100-gallon, a 50-gallon, a 300-gallon stock tank. You put it in somewhere, maybe you plumb to it with a float valve, and then you water your stock with it. Well, when they make these little ponds, and they can be, you know, Anywhere from a 20th of an acre to a 10th of an acre, uh, maybe even close to a quarter acre, um, they just call them stock tanks because they're not really like pond size, right? Like big pond size. So I'm going to just assume it's that kind of a pond. And in these little ponds, like I have a city pond that I fish at and I catch bullheads and, and bluegills and stuff like that for my stocking my stuff. And it's probably an acre and a half. And it's so over populated with turtles that they're actually a nuisance and the people that manage the pond for the city they literally if they find a turtle crossing the street pick it up and bring it and put it in the pond and make the problem worse they have no idea what they're doing from a fisheries management standpoint at all uh the bluegills are all stunted little tiny things in there uh the blue the bullheads are like as big as your pinky, you know, most of them, which are great for me to stock, but they kind of give you the stink eye when you're keeping. it's like, you guys are overpop. they have no idea what they're doing, but the turtle population is through the roof. Well, every day, kids and mommies and, and what have you come down to feed the ducks and the geese there, and they throw bread in the water, fishermen throw stuff in the water, and there's tons of these little fish, so the turtles have this massive, constant supply of food. My best guess, on a small pond, and turtles start dying, is that they're starving to death. Um, if there's some sort of disease or something, I mean, one thing we'll look out for is salmonella. Uh, turtles can carry salmonella, and turtles can die from salmonella. But water quality in of itself has to be really bad to kill a turtle, because a turtle can breathe air on the surface. The other potential possibility, since this is early spring and uh, we're coming out of winter, and uh, Schuyler didn't say where he's at, is maybe these turtles got somewhere where they were holed up for winter and they screwed up and they, like the mud literally froze around them and killed them. And then when everything melted, they kind of came up. That's not likely, but I guess it's possible. Otherwise, you have a disease issue. Uh, again, I, I really don't think it's, it, so if there are fish in this pond and you had an O2 problem, you had 11 dead turtles, if you had an O2 problem enough to kill 11 turtles, you probably have fish floating and stinking everywhere. So I wouldn't get too worried about it unless it keeps happening. From a pond management standpoint, if you are lucky enough to own land with ponds on it, I don't like to kill anything senselessly. But my pond management tool for turtles is a 22. As long as it can be done safely. Because you can get ricochets off of water with 22s. It's kind of... Eerie when you you hit water with a 22 and you hear Pew! and it happens so uh, be aware of that but um, I had several farmers that I shot uh, groundhogs for in Pennsylvania when I was a kid and several of them were like man I wish you'd get rid of those turtles really you know so you come up and you you set up with a you set up a little portable bench rest you know and you sit there with a Ruger ten twenty two and pop turtles all day uh, they really overpopulate. So it's very possible that in this small pond environment, they overpopulated, they wiped out the fish that they can actually catch anyway, nobody's feeding them, and they're actually beginning to starve to death. That's my best guess, but I can't possibly know that. Next up, Nathan, also on me, we said, where can I get seed, and he doesn't really mean seed, he means tubers, uh, of groundnut, and what he's talking about there, for those who don't know, it's is Apius Americana, is the American groundnut, it's also called hopness by some people, and Jerusalem artichokes to grow. Well, first thing I would tell you is if you have like a Whole Foods or a Central Market or some sort of yuppie grocery store around you, odds are if you cruise on down there, you'll find in the produce section Jerusalem artichokes. You can buy them very inexpensively, and the ones you buy in the grocery store, you put in the ground, they grow I, uh, first time I ever grew, uh, Jerusalem artichokes on purpose anyway, somebody when I first moved into this property sent me four of them and said, cut them into quarters and put them in the ground. So I cut them into quarters, I put them in the ground, spread them off across a three foot by eight foot, uh, bed, a three foot by ten foot bed, and I ended up with four and a half five gallon buckets of them. So you don't need a lot to grow a lot. You can also get them on Amazon from a, a, a seller called Yum Heart Gardens. I've bought from them before. They've always been uh, good to their word, and they're actually listed at the t uh catalog. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com and search for Jerusalem artichokes, I'm sure that uh, write-up on them. I just ran them a couple weeks ago as an item, of the day will come up. And as of a couple of weeks ago, they had them. But they're not real hard to get your hands on. Uh, I would also say, you know, if you ask... On like the, te- the the TSP Telegram or MeWe group or something, there's probably people willing to send you some uh, because they're once you get into production with them, there's just nothing about them that's hard. Um, you can I've had people say like I I didn't harvest them for a couple of years and they're supposed to be invasive and they just went away. That can happen. They can actually produce themselves out of existence if they're not somewhat harvested on. Uh, a regular basis there. So uh, there is that. If you ever have them in a place you don't want them and you want to get rid of them, this is the secret with Jerusalem artichokes, don't, when they first come up, pull them out. What's going to happen if you try to do that is you're going to break the little chute off and you're going to piss the little tuber off and it's going to send out, it's going to survive. It's going to go survival mode and it's going to send out more runners and it's going to pump up everywhere that it can. If you wait till they're about 18 inches tall, They'll use. They have that one good upright uh, stem mainly, or maybe two. And what they're going to do is they're going to grow up and they're going to start to form a new root system, and then they start sending out runners, right? Well, if you wait till they're about 18 inches, 12 to 18 inches, grab it and pull it. It'll pop right out of the ground like it, like you can't believe how easy it comes out. And the tuber that's on there, when you squeeze it, will be empty. It's taken all that energy and it's used it for the next generation. If you pull one out and it's still hard, wait another week and then pull out the ones you don't want. You'll clear that out. Apius Americana is a little bit harder. It actually was a commercial crop in colonial times. It's not a commercial crop anymore. Uh, the best ones are made, are, are enhanced varieties that have, the work's been done at LSU University. Uh, Nutty Groundnut, uh, number one and number two are two of the varieties. There's several other varieties of them. Uh, oikos tree crops is a good place to get them except last I checked I think they were sold out on most things uh, as far as the ground nuts go they also oikos tree, tree crops O-K-I-O-S oikos tree crops don't just look for oikos you'll find fake Greek yogurt right? but oikos tree crops has a ton of variety in Jerusalem artichokes but you want to know this is my secret it's in the pond course I'm putting together a lot of different things that you don't think you can find the place to get them, including things that are banned by the government and normal nurseries don't sell them. eBay and Etsy. And Etsy's becoming my go-to for certain things. Uh, I'm growing duck potato, two different varieties of duck potato this year. Uh, both of them from Etsy. Uh, Chinese uh, water chestnut. Um, I did not take care of my seed stock this year and it all got moldy in the cooler. So I'm, I bought some more from Etsy. There are sellers on Etsy. We always think of Etsy as like little crafts and stuff. Any plant you want to grow, especially hard to find stuff, check Etsy for it. And a little thing that will help you with these plants, like I mentioned, the Aps Americana is groundnut. Learn or look up the Latin name for what you're looking for. And a lot of times, when it's hard to find a thing, if you throw the Latin name in, these these guys on Etsy and all, they kind of know that people look that way, and it might make it a little easier to find exactly. What you're looking for. Next up today, um, Jamie on me. We said, "Should I buy a freeze dryer?" I don't know, but my answer has changed. So when freeze dryers first came out, I looked at them, and there's only Harvest Ride is the only company that makes a freeze dryer that you're going to put in your house. They're expensive; they're thousands of dollars. And I did basic math and said, "Well." You still have to buy or produce the food. Then you have to freeze-dry it. There's an energy cost with freeze-drying. There's an upfront cost with with the freeze-dryer itself. You can only do so much in a batch. Like the medium-sized one seems to be the one most people are willing to invest the money in. And so only so much will fit in there per run. And there's a time that it takes to do that. And Karen in here is mentioning she uses a dehydrator. And there are things that dehydrate beautifully. And there are things that don't. There are things that don't. If you want meat that you're going to eat like cooked meat in the future, dehydration makes great jerky. It doesn't make good meat for stew in the future. right? So there are things dehydrators do okay or as good. And there are things that freeze drying does so much better. But... When I looked at the cost of freeze-dried foods, the cost of the machine, the cost of the base food, and the cost of the energy when they first came out, I said, don't do it. It is a financially stupid decision. Well, there are times when I come on the air and people think, Jack thinks he's always right. I come on the air and I go, no, I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong because if you can get your dehydrator... And you have enough self-production to go into it. You can pay it off in a reasonable amount, of, reasonable amount of time. Three to five years. Still not really sold on it. But it turns out there's a lot of ways to skin this cat. What a lot of people are doing... And these things sell like crazy on the internet. Different sites. Probably Etsy. <laughs> you can ask Nicole Sauce where she sold hers. But freeze-dried candies... And the number one freeze-dried candy, Skittles. Freeze-dried Skittles, you buy like a mega-giant bag of Skittles, and you put the Skittles in the freeze-dryer, and they puff up into this like... It's like a crack. You're either going to love it or hate it. And if you love it, it's like candy crack. It's addictive. Uh, It's a bit sweet for my taste, and I don't do sugar anyway, but I tried some. Nicole brought some down here. And there are people that pay off their dehydrators in 6 to 12 months, just selling Skittles, and at that point, they stopped doing it. And there's other things. I think they do candy corn. There's other shit. I don't, you have to look it up. Then, can you make deals? So, like Jake Robinson, who I pick on a lot because he deserves it, but he, he's also a smart guy, um, he got one, and he made a deal with the Amish, and the Amish bring him a certain amount, I don't remember how much it is, but a certain amount of milk every week. He freeze dries it all, he keeps half of it, and he gives half of it back. Then, beyond the amount he can use for himself, he sells their barters to other people. I've also seen him do things like he picked a ton of persimmons. Uh, There was just windfall persimmons, right, off native trees, uh, dehydrated them into a powder, and made mead kits. So the mead kit came with everything except the honey and the water. So it came with the yeast uh, and some, some additives that I recommend when you make mead, and a certain amount of persimmon powder to make persimmon mead. And so... Can you do something creative to recoup the investment in a reasonable time? And if you can recoup the investment in a year, and then all you're talking about is the power usage, and if you can come up with an ongoing way to use it, <clears throat> I have to say, all this shit's got in my head, and I want one. Just, just from eggs alone. Like, we produce so many more eggs than we sell now because we don't really market heavily anymore. And we have a lot of Muscovy, so we go into this bursty production in the spring. It's ridiculous. And then we get customers when we have no eggs. And it'd be nice to say, well, I have a jar. The jar is equivalent to four dozen eggs. And I would sell it for more than four dozen fresh eggs cost." And if you don't want it, don't buy it. I'll sell it to somebody else. So I think it depends on what you can can come up with. Now, Karen says dehydrators are cheap. Yes, compared to a freeze dryer, the most expensive dehydrator, which is the Excalibur, and if you're going to buy a dehydrator, I'm all about the Excalibur. If you're going to use it a lot, um, it's, yes, it's, you know, in the $300 range. Uh, I'm a big believer in buy once, cry once, but I also know people that just go to like Goodwill and stuff. And whenever there's one there for five bucks, they buy it. I can't really fault you for that, but the best dehydrator is made by Excalibur and the warranty on them is great. And if anything's going to go out, it's usually the motor. I think the motor has like a five year warranty on it and it's like, Five, four screws and a Phillips screwdriver. They send you a new motor. You pop it in. So, um, I have always been about dehydration over freeze drying at home, but my opinion has changed. And I'm not out buying one yet. But I'm saying that when I said absolutely not to a few years ago, I was flat out wrong. If you can make these things pay for themselves, of course it makes sense. And I've seen a lot of barter deals go down, and I've seen a lot of people that end up with a freeze-dryer. If you have kind of an extended prepper group and you do freeze-drying for people in return for a portion of the food, you got free food, man. So I think there's a lot of ways to make this work. Um, and somebody here is saying that, Bobby Joe is saying, a friend brought a freeze-dried gummy worms yesterday. I told her they look like clown cheese, pasta. <laughs> But they're probably you know, the thing is, they're one of those things that um they're one of those things that you can't just go to the store and buy. You know, it's a niche product, it's probably never gonna be that big that it's gonna be worth the big guys going into it. Freeze drying is expensive. It's the best and most expensive way to preserve food. So as long as they can sell tons of candy in the candy aisle the way it is, they're probably not gonna do it. So it's a nice little niche for the Agorists to exploit. Uh, and, guys, remember, if you have questions, comments for me, um, all caps, and we'll star them and try to come back to them at the end. Um, Brandon on Twitter says, How do you raise food and livestock in the desert? Great question, Brandon. He said he saw Jeff Lawton's stuff in Jordan with Greening the Desert, and that's great, but it's harsh, and, you know, like everything bakes, animals are miserable, etc. There are some keys to... Uh, growing in the desert and the first thing I would suggest is go to you know you're on YouTube probably now if you're watching this but go to YouTube and look up Brad Lancaster Brad Brad Lancaster and look at the work he's done near Tucson, Arizona which is the flipping desert and what you'll find is a basic formula for happiness in the desert now it's not a lot of livestock it's more uh, vegetation but vegetation is what we need if we want to do livestock So the keys to the desert are it's a very dry, hot environment, but you design for a flood. This is the key. Desert environments have this hard, compacted, fast runoff soil. And then any hardball just increases that. So uh, your your driveway, your roads, et cetera, uh, increase that. So what Brad Lancaster did is they t- they changed the whole neighborhood in Tucson. It looks like a it looks like a forest. And the main thing that they did now I'm not saying to do this, and I am saying if you do this to be smart about how you do it, they brought concrete saws in without asking the city's permission, and they cut out pieces of the curb on the sides of the road where the where the gutters run down, and they diverted the water from the road into what you call the nature strip, the piece of uh, land between the sidewalk and the road, that little strip of land. And they built basically, he calls them wells, but don't think of a well like you drill down into the ground. Think of a well as like a place that water collects. So basically they create this depression, they fill it with mulch, they plant a tree in it. And then every time it does rain, all that water diverts and goes into the ground like a little, like a, like a dry weather pond there. And it's a fairly significant depression that they can create to do this. Again, look up Brad Lancaster, Tucson uh, on YouTube, and you can find all kinds of videos about the work that's been done there. And it's it's just a fantastic way. And, And so if you're doing this on your own homestead or something, instead of a suburban neighborhood with a concrete saw, you have to kind of think the same way. You want to use earthworks? whether they're small scale or large scale, and you want to funnel water into collection zones, and then you want to, in those places, you want to plant trees that are native to desert climates. So maybe uh, honey mesquite, or or different varieties of productive trees that get big and canopy out, because the number one thing we want, shade. Shade is everything in the desert. It's not that far west of where i live you get into you know edge scrub desert i was out there years ago god 20 years ago doing a, a a water utility project we had an underground construction business and i remember sitting out there one day in the middle of this like this field and there was like no trees and i was just baking it was like 110 degrees had a guy running a directional bore machine pounding on limestone rock underneath it this is not, we're not going to make any money on this we need to get out of this job is all i'm thinking and i'm sitting there and there's a there's a fence And there's a cattle guard, and so the fence post on both sides of the cattle guard is kind of a big, substantial fence. And here comes this lizard man, and he's just hauling ass across the sand like a a documentary you see where they're barely touching the sand. And he he goes past this fence post, and he stops, and he literally backs up like a truck, and he just sits there in the shade like, (sighs) shades everything in the desert. So the first thing we want is we want canopy, and we want water catchment, and we want mulch. Those are your three things. And then we want to use that microclimate we've created as as to where we house and manage whatever livestock we have. And we have to be reasonable with what livestock are going to work for us in that situation. right? So uh, we're probably not doing small-scale cattle ranching. Uh, in the desert, at least not initially until we get fully established and maybe we can establish some like interswell grasslands or something like that and some some of silver pasture. But I really again recommend you look up Brad Lancaster. If you're doing gardens, then I, I don't think you're overkill to put something you know akin to a pergola up and throw something on it like 40 or 50 percent shade cloth and maybe even bring some of your shade, especially on your east and west sides where you get the lower sun angle late in the day. Uh, or utilize uh, structures. So if we have a pergola, and we have a shade cloth over it, but we have a structure that blocks western sun, we don't need to worry. So now we have eastern sun, midday partial shade, and heavy shade in the western uh, sky in, in, the, in the late day, which is where things are just miserable even here where I live. Uh, so east sun, west shade is a good formula to follow as well. And then the other thing I would suggest is it makes a lot of sense in those climates to put in wicking beds. Some sort of recirculating or automatically plumbed, you know, maintained wicking bed, then your soil just never grows goes, you know, never dries out. Because the big problem when soils dry out is then you get rain and like this is what's happening to us today. Like it hasn't rained this year hardly at all. We had a little bit of snow during that one freezing event, but we really haven't had any rain at all. And when we dig up, we we're just planting this weekend, and it's like dust. Like, and we have good soil structure now, and it's like dust. And then it rains, and the the top of the surface is soaking, sobbing wet. If it's not, you know, a heavy slope, it just like it builds up, and there's just water sitting there. Like, man, is it wet you wait till it goes down you go you expect to see mud there and like the top's wet and you pull away of you know 2 millimeters of soil and it's bone dry the soil actually becomes hydrophobic when it dries out that much it takes a major event to rehydrate that soil and recondition it and again spraying compost teas and stuff like that is very beneficial to getting that structure but there's a point no matter how good it is if it's dry enough long enough you get like that so creating ways for water to infiltrate creating water catchment so that it has to sit in a spot and then seep in. These are all ways to um, to deal with things. Uh, next, we have... I want to say a little bit more on the desert thing. Like Your number one livestock is probably chickens. Your chicken that has the most heat tolerance is probably the white leghorn. Uh, in the very hot parts of Australia, it's the most popular chicken that they raise down there. Um, again, shade, water, good feed... And, uh, and and that's probably your best place to start with livestock. I'm not an expert on desert climates at all. Uh, that's kind of the best advice that I can give here to get started. And definitely check into what Brad Lancaster is doing with water harvesting. Uh, Joe on Twitter. Uh, in fact, that was Brandon on Twitter asked that last question. We've switched now from MeWe to Twitter. Joe on Twitter says: Permaculture with ducks, chickens, and geese. Can we do that into our old age? And. I actually think it's probably easier than gardening. Let's look at... So I don't raise geese anymore. We might go back into geese. I don't know. But we raise ducks and chickens right now. And this this is the work for me for our ducks and chickens. I go out in the morning. I open the coop. They come out. I could automate that so I don't even have to. I make sure that they have food. And I don't feed them at their house. I feed them kind of out where I want them working. And so I have two... Feed tubs about this big, about you know like four gallon feed tubs. I take a half of a bucket of feed out to them and I dump it in the buckets and that's their feed. Uh, I make sure they have water, so that's your biggest chore with ducks. Uh, and so you, they need to be able to bathe. So if you have a pond, you're done. You know, if a pond or a couple sizable ponds that they can use, then you're done. Uh, I have to fill them up, but it's not like physically hard, right? It's a routine. Routines are good. We live long with routines, so. I have some 20-gallon tubs. I put them wherever I want them that day. I fill them up with water. At the end of that, I dump them on my fruit trees or what have you, and I move them to the next location the next day. That's it, right? So that's not hard. And I pick the eggs up, and we package and carton the eggs. So I actually think birds are a very high high ROI and protein output, eggs and meat both, relative to the amount of work that you do. And even culling right if you're not, if if you're homesteading and by homesteading you mean i want to raise 5000 meat chickens every year for market into old age that's hard but if you're like so i'm going to take some birds for meat here and there for instance this is how i process a muscovy duck right if if i'm going to do the processing myself i don't do 10 i do one or two on any given day i hang them up I slit the throat, I bleed them out into a bucket full of mulch because I don't believe in wasting things, and that blood goes into a compost pile. I then take them, and I don't scald them or do any of that. I dry pluck the breast, which is actually really easy to do. You'll have a few little fine feathers left that are not worth worrying about and fretting about. I take a knife, and I de-breast. I take a little mini blowtorch, and I singe off the feathers. Now I have two breast cutlets and I have skin, right? And then I skin the leg quarters. I take the thigh and the drumstick, cut off the foot, and I have two skinless uh leg quarters. And I just discard the rest. I compost the rest. That's it. That's all I do. My grandfather taught me how to do that when he was in his 80s. And my grandfather wasn't in great shape for for even for an 80-year-old man. He had black long he had a lot of mine injuries. He had, he had two different times he was in mine collapses and things like that. Um, and he didn't take care of himself and he was an alcoholic. So I guess if he could process a duck in his 80s, then most of y'all probably could too. Um, Thirsty Colt said, same here. If I kill an animal, I'm using the whole animal. Uh, and I just said I didn't. So maybe you said it when I, when I was talking about the, uh, the blood. But I actually kind of feel like I do because I take the carcass and I put it in the middle of a compost pile. Right? So that, that goes back. You'll find with ducks that if you pluck a whole duck, it's a great thing, but it is you will never get the ROI on it. When I want whole ducks, I take them down to a processor. I pay the guy eight bucks a piece, and they process the whole thing. And then you get a lot more fat, and you get bones to make stock and things like that. In the end, though, cold ducks and meat ducks are different so if i was raising ducks for meat i would do like jumbo peckins or something like that or i would do all male muscovies but if if it was a the, the hen the muscovies are dainty little birds you get a breast cutlet you know that's about the size of a small hand and it's not very thick and so when i when i butcher a male muscovy my wife and i can split one side of one breast when I put you a female, I'll eat the whole damn breast. So they're about to say, if you've ever hunted, the, the, the carcass is about the size of a wood duck, right? Now, K-bonks also saying duck fat, right? Well, that's the thing, right? So, like when when I process uh, uh, like a, a silver apple yard or uh, a Saxony, a big substantial a Cayuga, you get a pretty good fat yield off one duck. The fat yield off Muscovies is insignificant. They just they don't have that big layer of fat between their skin and their body. We're kind of off track here. I'll just say though that I love duck carcasses because I love making duck stock. Duck stock is probably the best stock you can make. So every year I will take at least a small run of coals down to the processor, and it's less the money and more the time. It's 45 out, you go pick them up the next day and it's 45 back. Right? So it's an hour and a half one day and an hour and a half, like a couple days later. So I don't like giving up the time, but just to be able to make a few big pots of duck stock, because people use duck soup and duck sausage is like a, a term for like something really screwed up. Duck stock is freaking delicious. But yes, you can do it into your old age. It's all about design the system. You can garden into your old age. If you want to garden into your old age, to me... You want to get an automated wicking bed system, and you want to bring the crop up to about, you know, your, your, your belly button height. So we do an elevated wicking bed system so that the top of the wicking bed is about where our navel is. So if we're tall, that's a little higher. If we're short, it's a little lower. That way we don't have to bend over. Soil never dries out. Soil's always healthy. Soil's always moist. Lot of Not, not all pest problems go away, but some pest problems are mitigated with this. And our ducks and chickens don't get in there and mess things up on us, at least not as much. And then that way, everything gets a lot easier. So right now, I'm actually thinking about this. I'm still young and healthy, but I'm also 50. So, like, you've crossed the midway. Like, most people don't make 100, right? So the midway's gone. It's somewhere in the rear. So as I get older, I've experienced some injuries. I'm dealing with, you know, a recurrent shoulder issue right now. This is a problem I've had since I was 19. I freaking popped an Achilles tendon last fall, uh, a few years ago, I messed my knee up, right? So as you're having you know, like these things slow you down and they make you think. So I'm trying to put things in place to make everything easier and then never be afraid to take on kind of an intern or a, a, a helper or something like that. There's a lot of people who want to learn this stuff. So as we get older, I think it also makes a lot of sense to start bringing in some help. Being willing to pay a little bit for it and pay in cash, but also pay in the transfer of knowledge. Right? You know, just be careful with that as well. But definitely you can do it. Um, Duck Father on Twitter, like the name. It was actually a longer handle. I just put the word out of his long, like five-word handle that I like best. Said, Should I fertilize in the hole or fertilize the whole garden? I actually changed the question so I could say that. Fertilize in the hole or fertilize the hole. He also asked about. With 10-10-10, if you don't know what 10-10-10 is, 10-10-10 is commercial fertilizer, 10 parts NPK, right, each. Uh, So my answer to that is no, no, I don't do commercial fertilizer, and I don't think you should either. But I'm also going to say this, if you're going to garden, and you're going to go buy a big sack of cheap 10-10-10 fertilizer, and you're going to use that fertilizer by instructions to the square foot, And you're going to grow vegetables in that garden. You're probably going to have good success on growing. You're going to become chemically dependent on the fertilizer. You're not going to build life in your soil. But it's going to work and it's going to produce. And almost everything that comes out of that garden will be healthier than something you go buy in a store. Including the stuff that they call organic. Because it's going to be fresh from the ground. And a molecule is a molecule. My problem with fertilizer isn't the fertilizer in of itself. It's by becoming dependent on the fertilizer, we stop taking care of the soil. The soil dies. And then basically we have an infertile sponge that we have to resupply with fertility every year. And it's just not optimum. So my view, my view on the question I'm going to give an answer using an organic fertilizer is what I think makes the most sense is to fertilize the whole of the garden space based on the recommendations of the fertilizer provider and then to take a small pinch of the fertilizer straight into the hole. My favorite fertilizer, and I just ordered a 50-pound bag of it today that I got a 10% discount on from my own MSB, Dr. Earth uh, Premium Gold 444 Fertilizer. Now I do like balance in a fertilizer, so four, 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 four parts nitrogen, four parts potassium, uh, four parts uh, uh, phosphorus, right? But it has a lot of other micronutrients in it. It also has beneficial microorganisms and colony-forming beneficial fungi. So it costs more, but I got a, I have a 50-pound bag being shipped to my house for like 70 bucks. That's more than I need for the season. Because you don't need to use a tremendous amount of it when we're building life in the soil. But I believe in the answer is both. Either way, though with the 10-10-10, you're a lot more likely to experience root burn doing that. I have an entire fertility program. Let me add in my show notes here, fertility. So I don't forget, I'll put a link to that with the seven things that I use for soil fertility. And if you use my program, what you're going to find is that you will need less every year instead of more or the same amount every year. The soils will get deeper. The soils will get richer. The life in the soil will explode. And eventually you'll use far, far less. The only reason I even ordered a 50-pound bag is I wanted to see how they shipped it since they're a supporting vendor. I wanted to support them since they're a supporting vendor, and we have a lot of trees going into new places this year that I want to hit heavily to build the life up with the, the organic uh, fertilizer plus compost and compost tape. right? So that's why I even bought that much of it. And I want to say something for Dr. Earth. I got a personal email thanking me for a large order. I'm sure it was triggered by some sort of automation over a certain size order or what have you, but it was from the founder of the company who I who I have communicated directly with um, when I negotiated the discount. So I have a 10% discount on it. But I'll say you can use any organic fertilizer. You can use a simple mix of like blood and bone for a good kick. I do use blood meal in addition to that. Like when I see a plant and it just you can tell it's just a little bit nitrogen deficient for whatever reason, I'll just pull back the soil and do a sprinkle of blood meal and push it back around. I use blood meal on my ebb and flow beds. When my nutrient dips a little bit because the fish aren't as active or whatever and the plant just has a little bit of not full green, I'll pull back just a little bit of the media and I'll put a pinch of blood meal straight on where the plant's roots are and push it back over it. And yes, it'll wash out over a few cycles, but that plant will take up whatever it needs and it won't harm the fish or the system either. So that's my way of handling things. I think if we're using compost tea, we're using good mulch, we're building soil life. We should be using less fertilizer every year. If we use 10, 10, 10, or any commercial chem ag fertilizer, we're going to become dependent on that forever, and the amount we need is going to be the same or more every year. And this is what happens. This is this is why this is important. I'm not gonna again. I'm not gonna crap on somebody who does it conventionally because that's still better than the alternative of getting everything from the store. But you 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 go to these farms and you you talk to farmers and they're like i have to use more and more and more of this stuff and you do a basic soil test and it comes up that for instance it's it's low in potassium or it's low in uh uh uh, phosphorus right and you do a more in-depth analysis of the soil and there's tons of it there and they've been loading it on the field. This happens a lot with uh, pecan uh, orchards in Texas. You know, they'll say it's it's low in potash when they do like a rudimentary soil test, but well, you do a deeper dive in it, and there's there's tons of potash in there. But it's in it, it's inaccessible to the tree. so you just keep throwing more and more and more on, and all you're doing is wiping out the soil food web. Where well, if we bring life into the soil, right? Then, then things just get better. And uh, the hammer says, are plants fertilized with blood meal still vegetarian? I don't know. You have to ask a vegetarian. It doesn't really bother me one way or the other. But definitely, um, that, that's, that's my advice there. I also am big on using mycorrhizal fungi. And I like to do that if it's a transplant. When I go to put that plant in, I usually tease the roots out a little bit. I'll just take a little pinch of this powder, the mycorrhizal fungi, and sprinkle it right on the roots. And I'll do that with Dr. Earth, too, because it has some mycorrhizal fungi in it as well. And what happens is the fungi actually connect to the roots, and then they spread through the soil, assuming you have a good soil food web, you have good structure, and you have good moisture. And the fungi basically extend the roots of the plant, and they're in a symbiotic relationship. And you can inoculate a plant and not inoculate another plant in two separate beds and when you pull them up, the difference in the root structure is enormous with the inoculated plants. So those are more my ways to go there. Uh, next up, uh, what should I do if I want to design 40 acres, but I don't want to take a PDC from Timbuktu Hoddle on Twitter? And I'm going to kind of combine this with the next question. Uh, T. Wingard on Float said, using animals to restore a uh, 15-year-old clear-cut in East Texas. I'm going to kind of put these two together. So if you're dealing with 15-year-old clear-cut, you should probably have pro- quite a bit of regrowth already. Young, you know, 15-year regrowth, and animals are going to want to clear that out. And that's kind of why I'm putting these two together. Let's starting off with the first one from Timbuck2Hodl on Twitter. He said he doesn't have the money or the time to take a PDC right now. The time I get. The money, if it's, I don't have the money, meaning I just don't want to spend the money on a PDC. That's fine, and I don't know that you need to be taking a PDC to design 40 acres, right? PDCs are great for people to take, but they're not technique and tactic intensive. They're more strategic, overriding, conceptual. And if there's one thing you want to do, you might be far better off paying a permaculture consultant to design a property of that scale and make sure you don't make very expensive type 1 errors then to take a PDC and then go try to do it for yourself because when, and we'll be talking about this as we go through my permaculture introduction series the first property you design once you get an understanding of permaculture design probably shouldn't be your own because we get special syndrome in our heads right My property special Permaculture design course is what PDC stands for Jordan. Uh, but we, my property's special. My property has unique things that no other property has. Yeah, so does every other property. We have an emotional attachment. So I always tell people when I'm, when I'm teaching permaculture, once you feel like you know what you're doing, go design your neighbor's property. Go design your friend's property. Go design your mom's property. And they're like, but they don't want to do permaculture. I didn't say to install it. I said design it. Cause what'll happen, when you go into a property and you're not emotionally attached to it, you're gonna be like if you're doing 40 acres, you're gonna be like, okay, so I got a laneway here, and I got a paddock here, and a paddock here, and a paddock here, and a paddock here, and I'm gonna put a strip of uh, trees in here. And that's gonna be my civil pasture through here, and uh, this is where I'm gonna set, you know, central stock tank, and that's gonna handle four or six paddocks at the same corner, and that way the animals can come down here, and like it's just bam, 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 bam. It's just so simplistic to do because you're not emotionally attached. You get on your property, you start hemming and hawing your ass off. Trust me, I've been there. We all do it in the beginning. That's why I say, go out and design something else. Go to a freaking city park and sit down and pretend you just bought it. Well, don't pretend you bought it. Pretend your friend bought it. And all those people that are running around, milling around, cause control are not going to be there. What would you do? Look at the landform. If you would do earthworks, where would they be? And if you did earthworks... And cattle we're going to move through, how do you not design access out of the system? Things like that, right? So if I was going to put in 40 acres, the first thing I'm going to say is if when you said I don't have the money for a PDC, well, you probably don't have the money to develop 40 acres. Unless what you mean, again, is I just don't want to spend it on a PDC. That I totally get. I totally get that. I would look at both of these, I would look very serious at running sheep. Maybe cattle, maybe something else, But and again, I don't know on the 15-year clear-cut how much land there is. But when you start talking in acres, you get into systems that managing them mechanically, unless we're going to put them into forest, becomes very expensive or requires a lot of equipment. When, when you know, somebody asked Sepp Holter at one time, when he was talking about using pigs in one of his systems, and he said, what if I don't want pigs? And he said, well, then you have to do the pig's job. Right, so animals are mowing machines. It, well, the kind of, ant- like a sheep is a mower. It's a four-legged, solar and grass-powered mower and fertilizing machine. Right, that's what it does. It mows, it tramples and it fertilizes, and it remineralizes, and it increases soil life. That's what a sheep is, if you manage it properly. And it can be very inexpensive relative to size to establish a sheep operation. You want to use what they call a hair sheep, like a Dorper, or I don't know the particular breed that Greg Judy's using, I, and I have a link for you um, in... Uh, the show notes today. You can get over to the audio from this video if, if you're on the video side in the link in the notes again. Um, where Greg Judy goes over, it's almost an hour long. and He goes over his entire sheep operation, and when people, when he's asked by, but it's Justin Rhodes' video, and he says, "Well, why don't you do sheep? Because then you would get sheep and lambs, but you would also get wool if you did a wool sheep." And and Greg says, "Real simple. It it costs you an expense." More money to pull the wool off the sheep than the wool sells for in the current market. So why would you do that? Very cut and dry, blunt. Do you make money? And Greg's a super nice guy. right? But he's also a businessman and he thinks that way. And when you ask him a question, you get a straight up answer. Well, I would lose money doing that, so I don't want to do it. Plus they get fly strike and other problems. When that wool gets wet, hair sheep don't. They just shed every year like a dog. And it doesn't matter because they're out in the middle of a field. You put livestock guardian dogs with them, you set up Dog feeders. So here's what a dog feeder, a dog feeder, it almost looks like a trap for wild pigs, if you've ever seen a wild pig trap. But the dog can crawl underneath, get in and eat his food. Why do you do that? Because the freaking sheep will eat all the dog's food and then the dogs will get starving and they'll start eating lambs that they're supposed to protect. Again, this is Greg Judy's mindset. And on larger land, I think, you know, you can, you can turn up to profitability a sheep operation faster than you can ever do beef. Um, you can be in your first year and have a marketable product with sheep. You can be selling uh, weaned lambs to somebody else that wants to raise them, or you can be selling meat lambs a few months later. Right, so it's, And it's a much smaller, easier to deal with animal than cattle. Uh, I think it's a real up-and-coming thing, and there's less competition for a marketable product. And I would look that way to either one. But this is what I would say to both of these gentlemen. Because, again, the 15-year road growth, I'm not sure on the acreage because I didn't say, but it sounds like substantial acreage. If you're going to design a piece of property of any size, really look at hiring a consultant with a proven track record. The guy that's in East Texas, this is my advice. Call Nick Ferguson and have him come to your place and tell him what your goals and objectives are. Discuss it with him. Pay him a couple thousand dollars, and you will save yourself tens of thousands of dollars of errors. I mean, none of this stuff is free, right? The knowledge, like when you go to somebody that really knows what they're doing, and you say, hey, help me with this, they're going to say, here's the bill. And that's okay. And my experience has been... I have been on property where I'm like, if I had looked at this before you acted, you'd be $20,000 ahead right now. Before you ask, I don't do consulting. That's why I said call Nick Ferguson. right, East Texas, Nixon in West Louisiana. Call Nick Ferguson. The other gentleman with 40 acres, I think he's in Australia. So I don't know who in your area I would rely on, but I would look. I would. This is what I would do. What do you want the property to be? Then find somebody who has a property the way you want yours to become and go speak to them about consulting with you on how to make your property like the one they already did. Somebody's asking, what about goats? No goats, not me. Goats are fine. I love goats. Capigrito is beautiful. There's a Tim Love has a place on the river. I can't, it's like a woodshed or something like that, smokehouse. It's on the, the Trinity River in downtown Fort Worth and they do cabrito tacos, and they do lamb brisket, right? And I love both of those things, right? So lamb brisket comes from sheep, cabrito tacos comes from goats. Yeah, you know what, though? When it comes to living with the animal and dealing with the animal, I like sheep better because goats are a pain in the ass. If you don't mind dealing with them, they're wonderful. But this is the thing about sheep. If you go with the hair sheep, like Dorpers, they are as good at grazing and browsing things that cattle can't really make a living on as a goat And they don't have all the problems that come with a goat. John Willis, who I get a lot of my shirts from, not the one I'm wearing today, but I think he had goats, and when he came home and they were on the roof of his Porsche, no more goats, right? I know Nicole Sauce likes goats, but she's had the goats on the roof of her house. Goats climb fences. Goats? Some goats are like, that's an electric fence. So what? I don't care. They get electrocuted and they don't care. Uh, Nick told me a story one time, he had a goat that climbed over the midwire in his electric fence, this is Nick Ferguson, the electric wire was on the goat's stomach, and this is a 25 mile box on a pretty small piece of ground, and the goat is eating, browsing on some stuff it's not supposed to browse on, and every time the fence pulsed, the goat would shake, and then eat again, and it didn't even get off the fence, right, that doesn't happen with sheep. Watch Greg's video on sheep, and I just think it's a more marketable and easier to get along with animal. And if you raise goats, and you do a good job at it, and they're not a pain in your ass, God bless you. And if you live near me, I will freaking buy one or two for meat from you a year. right? I love the goat as a meat animal. I don't like the goat as a personality. I just, sheep are easier to deal with, in my opinion. But I would, again, look to that, and I would look to any sizable investment Get somebody with a proven track record to take a look at it first because what's going to happen, you're going to go, I want to do this, I want to do this, and I want to do this, and they're going to go, don't do that. Here's how much money it's going to cost you and it's not going to work. This other thing, don't do that because it's not going to work at all and it's going to cost you everything. And this third one, that's a good idea. If you do these other two things first, tie this into it and change this one thing, and that 1500 2000 even $3,000 consulting fee just saved you 20000 30000 $40,000 over life. Really consider getting professional help if you've not done this before. If you're young, the best advice I have for you, go find a somebody who's who's making a living doing what you want to do. And if you have to live there for six months sleeping in the back of a truck camper, go work for them. Work for them for freaking free if that's what it takes to sell yourself going to work for them. And learn to do the business. And don't just learn to raise the sheep. Don't just re- learn to ma- learn the business. Most farms and ranches do not fail because they fail to produce a crop. They fail because they have, they fail to make good business decisions and sell the product that they produce, right? People, farms that go out of business because they didn't get a good pr- crop, grow wheat and corn and soy and general, uh, you know, kind of out of the box beef cattle for the cafos. Small farms, small ranches, small concerns, 20 acres, 40 acres, one acre market gardens, they almost inevitably figure out how to produce food. But if you don't move it, guy puts in a half acre market garden, produces tons of beautiful, expensive, organic salad greens, and it all rots because he doesn't sell it. How many times can that happen before you're out of business? Right? Learn the business. Let's go and make things happen by going and getting involved with someone that's actually done it right. Even, you know, if I was going to go into sheep ranching, I'd I'd get in touch with Greg and say, "Uh, you know what, I want to come work on your farm for a week, and I I just want basic exposure to everything. I'll pay you $2,000 to work for you for a week, and I'll work my ass off. I'll do whatever you need me to do, but I just want to make sure I'm informed. Like, that's that's what I would do. If I was 20-something... And I wanted a career doing this. I wanted to build a business doing this. That's what I would do. All right, next up. Uh, Interesting question. Matt LSA on Float said, what's your favorite varieties of Nasertium or does it even matter? It doesn't matter, but I do have two that I really like to grow and coincidentally both of them can be bought from seed vendors who support the MSB with a discount. The first one you can find at any seed, which we have, I think that's a 15% discount too. Um, and generally there's there most things, if they have them at both places, even though Eden Brothers does a higher discount, they'll be less at any seed because the price starts out a little bit lower to begin with. So Jeweled Mix nasturtium is one of my favorite nasturtiums. I love to grow nasturtium flowers. Uh, the flowers taste kind of peppery and hot. The leaves are peppery and hot as well. But the, the, the flowers are more peppery. They're beautiful in salads. They're delicious. I can only grow them until about mid-June. As soon as they start to turn yellow, I yank them out. Uh, but the uh, the Jeweled Mix, you can get those at any seed. And then there's another one that I like. They're Big leaves and big flowers, and they're a deep, dark, gorgeous red, and they are called Globe of Fire. Uh, Globe of Fire is is my other favorite. I also like Alaskan. It's like Alaskan Jewel or something like that's another red variety, uh, but they're a dwarf variety. So I like I like to grow nasturtiums that have really big leaves because like I love to actually take like two or three leaves of nasturtium. And grill something like, I've done it with snails, I've done it with shrimp, um, I've done it with fish, like little slivers of, of fish. And so then you take that, you grill it like a, a butter and garlic thing, and then you roll it and maybe you put in a little bit, a little uh, fern of fennel, and a few chives, and maybe like a sliver of radish, and you roll it up like a spring roll. And it is Freaking phenomenal, and it's one of those things. Like I wish at times I lived in the northern states like I used to long ago, because you can grow nasturtiums through the whole of the growing season up there. But then the other side of it is I have them for a few months. You know, I I plant them about right now. They they start becoming productive in about four weeks on some level, and then I have them for like a month and a half. And it makes it kind of special. Like I talked about black locust season coming up, where you can eat the black locust blossoms, but. Nasturtiums are something I think everybody should grow. I buy like a quarter pound from any seed at a time, and that's a buttload of assertions. I just poke them in the ground everywhere. And the way I look at it, you know, they're a short-term crop. I get as much as I can out of it. And when they come out of the ground, they're mulch, and they're leaving. And I don't ever yank them. I say yank them. I don't. I take something like uh, my, my glittering, bizarre grape knife, and I cut them and I leave the roots, I always leave the roots of everything in the soil because that feeds the soil and the soil organisms. Next up, let's see here. Uh, Josh Phoenix on float. Thoughts on small breed pigs for composting? And he said, Jack, have you ever considered small breed pigs for composting the way you use chickens for composting? The answer is no, I have not. And this is why. I have a fairly small property. I have dogs that probably are not going to get along with pigs because a pig is too much like a dog. And either the dog's going to kill the pig or the pig's going to kill the dog. I don't have a very large property. Uh, it's not really suitable for pigs. I don't want things rooted up and I don't want to pen the pig. And flatly, I don't need another thing to do. Right? I have pretty much settled in on the things that work best for me. I've tried a lot of things that people all the time ask me about rabbits. I don't even have any of the problems I just said with rabbits that I would with pigs. But it would be one more thing to do. Remember our earlier conversation about as we get older? So I don't need more things to do. I'm trying to automate work to where there's less work for me to do. right? So, um, However, I think pigs are a fantastic meat animal. Smaller breeds are good for the homesteader. Things like American Guinea hogs and stuff like that, they're not really profitable animals because they take so long to raise to a meat-yield size. The American guinea hog really came into its own. In the northeastern United States where there were massive amounts of oaks, so in the fall they could just feed themselves. And what people really fail to realize is that the American guinea hog goes back prior to the chestnut blight. And so the entire, everything east of the Mississippi River, and even some west of the Mississippi, but definitely everything east of the Mississippi, all the way into northern Florida and up into Maine, there were chestnuts and chingapins. And, I mean, these trees were, were you know, bigger around than my arms fully stretched out, um, just a cross-section, right? I'm not talking about radius. I'm talking diameter. These trees were enormous, and they dropped these huge nuts. To the point where farmers that didn't let their animals go out into the forest would literally like pull carts with horses into the forest and take a number 10 coal shovel, right? Now, guys, look, if you've never seen a number 10 coal shovel, look up what one is. It's like a coal shovel the size of a snow shovel. And if you've ever used one shoveling like buckwheat coal, it will wear your ass out. They would shovel chestnuts. With a number 10 coal shovel. I've seen old black and white photos of them shoveling chestnuts. So these pigs came up at a time where there was so much mast that you literally didn't have to feed them half the year, right? So just understand if you're going to use these smaller breeds of pigs, you have a, a much longer, or you have less ROI on your feed built in unless you have some sort of local feed. And that's why a lot of people are going to things more like red wattle and things like that that are a bit quicker from piglet to grow out to harvest. Do pigs make good composters? In my opinion, no, because they eat everything. So we want, like, turning over, twisting, and selective picking, and then pooping and leaving behind. But pig manure makes good compost if we do it properly. I don't see them as an ideal compost animal. I do see them as an excellent homestead meat animal if properly managed and if you're set up for it. Next up, which common homestead animals would you run together from dodo bird on float? Pretty much whatever I wanted within the constraints of the property that I have and how much money I want to invest in infrastructure. There isn't much you can't run together. Well, let's talk about our friend the pig. You know what pigs do to baby chickens? They eat them right down. Joel Salatin said they have a really great breed of chicken that they use as their laying birds now. And he said they're an excellent meat chicken, but they can't sell them. It's something about the color of the skin or the meat. I don't remember, but I remember listening to him talking about it. And he's like, so we keep the hens and the roosters, we feed them to the pigs. He said we throw them right over the pigs, the pigs eat them right up. So, you know, maybe you can train your pigs not to eat baby chickens, but it's at least good to know that pigs eat baby chickens. Who knew, right? Um, I find almost all poultry can be run together. Uh, Chickens, geese, ducks, turkeys, etc. I find that turkeys, sometimes the toms kind of go rogue and they will beat up small to like beat to death or seriously wound where you'll have to kill. Uh, Especially when you're talking about like the broad breasted bronze. Uh, We've gone to when we do broad breasted uh, turkeys. These are the like hybrid turkeys that get enormous, like 50 pounds or more. We do all hens now and we just end that violence. If you're going with more of like your royal palms and stuff like that, you know, get a few toms and if you have one that's kind of a dick. Well, he's, he's Thanksgiving, Tom. Right? Um, geese get along with pretty much. You know, they might fight a little bit, but they don't really. They're not really dangerous except when they're brooding. The rest of the time, and if you raise your geese with ducks and baby chickens, so when you get your goslings, put them together with baby geese and chickens. They they kind of like identify with the flock then, and then they're less of a problem. Chickens and ducks, they they don't really get along. They just don't care. What I've noticed with chickens and ducks is like the chicken does this thing and the duck does its thing, and then they're just happy. They don't, they 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 go to the coop together at night. There's no real conflict. Uh, chickens roost and ducks stay on the ground, so you need to think about kind of making your roosting area where you're not going to have a lot of chicken poop landing down on the ducks. But they figure it out. You know, put your put your 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 roost to one side, and you'll notice that your ducks are laying their eggs on the other side, and that way you don't have chicken poop on your ducks. You don't have chicken poop on your duck eggs. Uh, it, it's really not hard. Um, there is an order if we're doing leader follower grazing systems. Like certain animals should be behind other animals, but that's a little more complex than we're going to get today. But, you know, do your research and make sure that you're, don't try to, here's my big thing when people ask questions like this what are you trying to accomplish? So many people like to get some land. I want chickens. I want cows. I want pigs. I want elephants and zebras and giraffes and Mr. Snuffleuphiguses and you know free ranging fish. And I want like uh, pterodactyls and I want uh, what do you uh, tyrannosaurus rexes and like <laughs> go one step at a time. Go one step at a time. Sort things out and figure out first what infrastructure do I need before we get the animals? So many people go buy baby chickens because they'll sell them to anybody at Tractor Supply, right? Two bucks a piece. You buy a bunch of baby chickens. They're peeping around. Bring them home. Throw them in a box or a stock tank. Put a heat lamp on them. You're good. And then three and a half, four weeks into it, they're feathered out. They're flying out of the box. No chicken coop. No way to maintain the chickens in a specific area. No coop and run or no free range area set up or what have you. Like get the infrastructure in place first And then the last one is from Texas Eco Farms, who was here at least the first time around. Uh, He said, thoughts on converting an in-ground swimming pool into a pond. Can you still swim in it? This is something that's going to be part of my aquatics course that's coming up. It should be available in a couple months-ish, definitely by this summer. And I have to say that this is, of all like the small-scale ponds, the thing that's the most distant from my practical knowledge case. So, when I build the course, the part that is going to be the swimming pool conversion... I have a friend named David. He lives about 45 minutes from here. And he has an in-ground pool that he has converted to a pond. And so I'm going to rely on him to help put the material together for that. That said, I already know that the magic is in what you do with the pond once you have it. Right? What you do with the pond once you have the pond, as in we pull water out of the pond to run grow beds. We pull water out of the pond to grow, run wicking beds, et cetera, and the filtration. Can you swim in it? Can you swim in a pond? Would you swim in a pond? Now, I'm going to be honest. When we swim in wild bodies of water, if we swim in a farm pond or something like that, the potential for some sort of amoeba or a parasite to get into our bodies is higher than when we swim in a chemically treated swimming pool. That said, there's been people infected with very bad parasites in chemically treated swimming pools. So there's no guarantee. There's always risk in life. But I know that my friend's son swims in his pond pool all the time. I would also recommend that you look up David Pagan Butler. Is that his name? Um, David Pagan Butler on YouTube. He builds what he calls natural swimming pools. And these are like ponds. They have plants in them. They have biological life in them. He uses airlift pumps. And his are gorgeous. Now, his stuff is not really taking an in-ground pool and converting it. His stuff is, let's put a pool in that's a pond that's all natural from the beginning. And he usually builds his with like these sloping shallows and then a deep part to swim in. And they're... Gorgeous, And they're done with uh, EDPM liners, and then the airlift pumps actually bring the water from the deep water up in from the ground, coming up above ground, into the shallows. Again, his name is David Pagan Butler. And if you want to do, like, the gorgeous thing from the get-go with a natural swimming pool, I would look at what he's doing, and I have a link to his YouTube channel in the, the audio notes that you can get after the stream ends. Um... My one caveat with that, I've not seen him put fish in these systems, right? So when you put fish in systems, now we have fish poop, we have sludge, okay, right? We have solids far more than if we don't put fish in them. We have food. We have food that's not eaten, that's rotted. So I, I think you're in a little bit different of a, a situation. When you have a pond, there is going to be a layer of detris, especially when you have fish, a layer of detritus at the bottom that you're going to want to, you know, frequently uh, maybe dredge out, especially if you're using it as a swimming pool. So I don't have a ton of direct experience with this, but I know everybody that does it seems to be happy about it. Now, the one big thing I advise you to do, and just back off the pool for a second here, okay? When you have a house, piece of real estate, and you do anything to it. You should do it in a way that it will be highly marketable if you decide to sell, or it will be relatively easy to undo. So the thing about a swimming pool is you might go in and put all these other different like mechanical filters or solid separators or things like that into them. Never destroy or damage the main filtering system for the pool. And I would not personally use it at all for the pond version of the pool. I would leave it alone, closed up, and shut down. And when you go to sell your house, unless you know somebody who's going to want a pond, you pump it out, you de- de-fish it, you fill it up, you make it nice and blue again, and it's back to being a swimming pool. Now, if you want to try to sell it without doing that and saying, I'll put it back if you want me to to a buyer, you can, but I, I'm going to tell you, most people are not like us. We're different. They'll take one look at it and go, oh, I don't want that. Oh, I don't want that. But, you know, I, I can also say there's like probably 10% of people would be like, that is badass. I want that. It would be a selling feature. So I'm not saying to rip it out before you put the house on the market. I'm saying have the ability to rip it out. And so preserve that ability if you're doing a in-ground swimming pool conversion. Um, but, yeah, I think if I had an in-ground swimming pool I don't know if I would have done it or not, because I don't know if my wife would let me. Uh, we have an above-ground swimming pool, and she won't let me turn that into a pond. And, and that's okay. I have my own ponds. All right. With that, I want to go and hit just a few starred comments and questions going through. Um, Rick Culture says, uh, Aquaculture and Oxbow next to Creek. Don't have any idea what you're asking, dude. That is not a question. I don't know what that means. Can you do Aquaculture next to a Creek? Yes. I don't know what oxbow is, and I don't know what kind of aquaculture you mean. Uh, Jeff, or J.P. Felt says, tadpole shrimp as fish food. You know, fish will eat tadpoles to a degree. Um, I have to say, last year I had a ton of bullheads in a pond and massive numbers of tadpoles. And the tadpole population never seemed to go down until little frogs came out and left. So I don't know how much tadpoles fish really eat. Uh, but I imagine they would. I mean, maybe there was just so many I didn't notice it, uh, but I certainly wouldn't uh, worry too much about, I, I wouldn't bet the farm on the fact that you're going to be able to get significant feedstock to your fish with tadpoles. Shrimp, man, I'm going to tell you what, they love those little neocondanias. And the reason I know that is I have a system where I have three upper tanks and there's no fishing. And there are, tens of thousands of those shrimp in those tanks. And once all the top growth comes on, the water hyacinths and stuff, if I go to the, they they drop down to a lower pond. And if I go to that lower pond and I take a net and I put it underneath a water hyacinth and I shake it and I pull that net out, there's little shrimps flipping around there where the bigger fish are. By the end of the season, there's really not any. So what they're doing is they're taking a ride down the overflow and they're, they're feeding the fish over time. So I know they definitely eat those little shrimps, especially like bluegills. We call them perch. Everything in Texas that's in the sunfish family is a perch, right? Uh, in, in Pennsylvania, they're sunnies. In Florida, they're brim, right? So it's whatever you want to call them, uh, slang to them. But, yeah, they definitely will eat those. It certainly won't hurt anything if they're there, that's for sure. And uh, Tommy says, how many fish should I put in a 400-gallon pond? I don't know, man. How big are they? What kind of fish are they? What kind of filtration system you have? But probably not as many as you think. Uh, Do they eat each other? If they're bullheads, and you put 50 bullheads in a 400-gallon pond, at the end of the season you might have 20 of them left because some are going to grow faster than others, and in that small of a pond they're going to eat each other. Um, If they're all about the same size when they go in, they might do it fairly well. I have a 470-gallon stock tank. There's probably three dozen bullheads and a couple channel cats in there, and a few big koi, and they seem to get along pretty well, but have a lot of structure and cover from them. 400-gallon pond, good filtration, proper management. Grow 100 tilapia in there to, you know, big before you harvest them. And what you do when you're growing fish in a tank, because a pond, 400 gallons is really a tank, and... There's a point where you get to where you kind of, like, start having problems because of their size. And you have, like, an ideal harvest size. Well, if you had 100 tilapia in a 400-gallon pond, when they get up to about, like, pan size, like, hand size, suboptimal harvest, you know, harvest 20 of them. When they get a little bit bigger, harvest another 20. And then you got, what, 60 left. Then you grow those out till they're almost the size you want, harvest 30. And then grow your last 30 out till they're really big. The issue with aquaponics is since you're doing this, all of a sudden you go from big population to small population of fish, less waste, et cetera, and it's harder to adjust. But if it's just aquaculture, and we're smart about how we implement our aquaponics elements, we don't really have the issues with that. Karen says, do you pickle the eggs? I love spicy pickled eggs. I don't pickle eggs very often. The number one way that I pickle eggs is somebody will give me a jar of pickled beets. And I love pickled beets, but they're high in sugar, so it takes me a while to eat them. But once I eat them, I have a jar that's like half pickled beet juice. I boil enough eggs to put in the pickled beet juice. I put the eggs in the pickled beet juice, put the lid on it, I stick them back in the refrigerator, and I let them sit there until they turn purple. We used to call them purple nurples. Uh, They were very popular bar food in Pennsylvania. Um, I don't actually go out of my way. like I I do... I've reused pickle juice. I've done it with uh, the pickle juice from jalapenos. Uh, that's that's pretty good, too. I've never actually pickled an egg, as in make my own pickle juice and pickle it. Uh, I like them, but not enough to put a lot of effort into it. Lone Star says, is there a list of free speech-loving websites, hosts, that you recommend? No. No, because that's not a homesteading question. And it's also... I don't know. I, I have... I have never... Gone out of my way to make sure that my web host was a lover of freedom of speech. I I want my web host to leave me alone, to not censor me, and to provide me high quality web hosting services. I use a company called 100Terabytes.com, 100TB.com. You know, I I don't really think I'm ever going to have a problem with my host. Uh, If I do, you know, I have backups of everything and I'll find a new host. But the reality is when you do what I do and the load that goes on my server every month. So we go through terabytes of data. You know, we go through multiple terabytes per week. It, it gets really expensive, and I what I didn't want to do was use like AWS, right? Because there, I see more likely to have a problem, right? So um, I, I really don't have a a good way to to point that out. Uh, Cletus says East Shade, West Sun, the equivalent. Well, I said Eastern Sun, Western Shade. Now, if you live somewhere where you're trying to warm up more and, and conserve more heat, then you know like a very conventional system uh, for growing fruits, especially like in England, is to grow the fruits on western walls or southwestern walls. So those they really take the heat in during the late part of the day and they hold carryover heat into the morning. So I'm not really sure what the question was there. And so just grow said, How do you not have millions of subscribers uh, here on YouTube? And I think the reality is until last year I didn't really put much into YouTube. So I think you get out what you put into things. I built my audience over 14 years primarily as an audio podcaster. I started this show in my car, for those that have been around long enough to remember when I did that. And, uh, I think since I built the audience on audio, audio is where the audience lies. And, and we'll get over 200,000 downloads of most episodes in the audio format. And there's clearly people that are like, I download all the Just Jack shows. And there's people like, I download mostly expert counsel. And there's people that like, I download the interviews because you see fluctuations and things like that. And I hear from different people that they just love one type of show or the other. And when you're putting out five shows a week and they're ranging from an hour to two hours a a show, most people aren't going to listen to all of them. But yeah, as far as YouTube, I think I've just, uh, I've not really put the effort in necessary. And then I think the other thing that's always hurt me on YouTube is that, most people who have very successful YouTube channels have a thing. You know, they're a Bitcoin channel or they're a gardening channel or what have you. I've always tried to be somebody that you can come to for a variety of topics so we don't get bored. Uh, even though I'm a prepper and, I, and it's the survival podcast, we're not talking about the same five subjects every week. Over and over again, store food, have guns, have bullets, and no first aid, and grow food. Right? Like, we talk about all types of variety. It's a lifestyle design show, and, uh, I don't know that that really leads to building a YouTube channel with millions of subscribers. K-Bonk says, are channel cats catfish? Yes, they are. Uh, channel cats are channel catfish. Uh, sometimes I guess, you know, we speak in short, shorthand, and we forget people don't know. But they're probably the most popular food catfish that there is. Uh, something that most people uh, tend to really like if they like catfish at all. Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to wrap up today. Uh, I'm sorry that we're so late in the day. It sucks for me because I wanted to spend the time I'm spending right now finishing the show up, putting together the PowerPoint for tomorrow's episode. Remember, tomorrow we're going into uh, permaculture as a design science part three of it. Three three, one hand, three of at least five, and I might be adding a six to that series, and so tomorrow we're going to talk about strategies, techniques, and tactics, and how if we start with the strategy, and then we implement the techniques tactically, we don't commit type one errors and end up costing ourselves lots of money, time, and misery. But if we start with the technique, absent the tactic and absent the strategy, then we're going to be miserable and chasing our tails and have things all disconnected all over the place. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. They pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way